Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, an in-depth interview with Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. I question her on housing, the vaccine rollout, and an unprecedented decision in the fight against COVID-19. How do you know the decision to suspend travel from India wasn't made for racial reasons? Then another week, another major water pipe burst in Wellington. But is cruddy infrastructure just a problem in our capital? Or could we all be up a you-know-what creek? One thing to say is this is a national issue. We're not alone in facing this. And for the first time since the school climate strikes began, we have the bones of a framework for New Zealand's climate future. So what do the kids think? What brought you down to the climate protest today? Um, our world's dying and we need our government to do something about it. We'll have that story soon. But first, Three and a half years since she became Prime Minister, with an ongoing global pandemic, Jacinda Ardern's government is responding to crises on multiple fronts. The Prime Minister has agreed to two interviews a year with Q&A. In our first for 2021, I began by asking about COVID-19 and the hotel worker who this week tested positive to the virus. Having missed their appointments for the vaccine, why was that person still working on the front line? So they had um, two bookings and you're right to point out that those were appointments that um, for a range of reasons they haven't made. And I think the important point here for, uh, uh, for me to mention is that of course we have prioritised our frontline workers but for them the ramifications of not being vaccinated are significant and so whilst we have successfully vaccinated over 80% of those frontline workers, we're now moving into the phase where really the window is closing, that if they are not vaccinated and we're giving through and we've already had set down that the period from Monday through to the end of this month, if in that period they're not vaccinated, they are redeployed. So that is a that is really last call. We had always planned that this would be the period in which that would happen. We knew that vaccination would be available for some time. This person missed two opportunities. Why didn't you move them off sooner? And look, again, um, this is a situation where you're right, two, two appointments were made, that individual hasn't made those appointments, and now we move into a situation where, as a result of that, they could be moved Sorry, on. Sorry, but that doesn't answer the question. Why, why not move them sooner? If, if you miss one appointment, say, given these are our highest risk individuals, why not move them sooner? And for 80%, over 80% of those individuals have been. So but this person wasn't, and they tested positive. Again, and so, let's, so why not move them sooner? And let's just acknowledge that these are individuals who have been the first in the queue and the ramifications for them not being vaccinated are huge. Mm. In some cases, you know, they'll be moved to jobs and other cases they may not have a place to go. And so we did give time for individuals to be vaccinated. The majority have for that small group we now go through a process. Another point to make though, um, this is someone who works for a company that we contract. So for them, uh, it is actually with the employer that we have asked them to ensure their workforce has been vaccinated. So we need to keep working through with those private contractors to ensure they're fulfilling those obligations. How do you know the decision to suspend travel from India and the advice on that front wasn't made for racial reasons? Because I would not make a decision on that basis ever. Are you concerned that some people have interpreted that decision as being racist? Oh, I would never want anyone to interpret a decision in that way because that is not the basis on which it was made. And Jack, if we had the same evidence coming through in other uh, high-risk countries, I would do exactly the same thing. I would treat it in an equitable way. 
The issue we have is that we put in place pre-departure testing to try and reduce down risk, not only arriving at the border, but for travellers. Um, what I'm concerned about is, from what we've seen from the genome sequencing, we can tell that travellers in that short period before they depart are getting sick. So I worry that they are at risk through the act of travelling. I feel like I have a duty of care to try and make that less risky for them, but also less risky generally. Are they not also at risk staying in India at the height of this pandemic? Oh, and look, people will be travelling for various reasons, um, but in some cases they may not have had COVID until the very act of trying to get to the airport in order to fly to New Zealand. And I'm very mindful of the obligation we have to our citizens and permanent residents to come home, but I want them to do that safely. Uh, and so that's why we're taking this pause, and it is a pause. This is not permanent to see if we can find better ways to support their health needs and New Zealand's. We've seen up to 180,000 confirmed cases a day in the United States, huge spikes in the UK. Previously in this pandemic response, your own health officials strongly advised you to close the borders to all arrivals. Why are you drawing the line here? Well, they, in the past, uh, of course, made uh, uh, that statement before. We, of course, had the advice that we could not permanently uh, and nor have I believed we should ever permanently stop citizens and permanent residents from being able to come home because you deem them stateless at that point. And we can't do that. Uh, and so Health gave that advice right at the beginning. So this is a year ago when we were working to find ways to manage. You rejected before, that advice. Then. It was before we had managed isolation mm. facilities. Now, we rejected that advice because a permanent ban on the ability to people to come home was wrong. Keep in mind, since that time, we've had quite a bit of time for people to get back. And a lot have, over 130,000 New Zealanders per capita. We have brought home more New Zealanders than the likes of Australia. But pre-departure testing for those other countries which have been high risk, we did see a drop in cases, but we haven't, we've seen an increase coming from India. So I just want to take some time, a short time, to see if we can improve on that. Let's talk about vaccination rates. So at the moment, uh, New Zealand is behind on a per capita basis, the likes of Mongolia, Suriname, Uruguay, Mong uh, Rwanda. You've explained that uh, that is because of our approval process and the decision to vaccinate all New Zealanders with the Pfizer vaccine. We're second to last, though, in the OECD for vaccination, Well, actually, right? no. I've given a slightly different explanation from, from that. Okay. I mean, we, it is true to say we, did, we have not, unlike many other countries, rushed our approval process. We took a normal process for approval for the vaccine, and I, I strongly believe that was the right thing to do to give people confidence in the vaccine we're using. But another significant contributing factor is we absolutely accepted we wouldn't be the first rolling out because the equation in New Zealand is so different, our people aren't dying. And so that does mean that some countries, um, despite maybe in some cases having their agreements after us, some cases before, received their vaccines before necessarily we So how we far did. down the list are we? Oh, I couldn't tell you necessarily what the but you've made this purchase, conscious decision. I mean, advanced purchase agreements, I can't tell you when countries signed theirs. Ours were, you know, fairly early on, but pharmaceutical companies then made the decision around distribution. And I support the fact that we have been later in the pecking order. I was on a Zoom call not that long ago with other world leaders, and I think with the exception of one country, every country had started before us because everyone had been losing lives and we weren't. And so I think New Zealanders accept that. 
the important point is when we finish. And New Zealand is, you know, on a similar trajectory to many other countries and looking to finish this. Let me ask about that trajectory then. So at the moment, on current vaccination rates, we're second to last in the OECD. Will New Zealand improve its per capita rate of vaccinations compared to those OECD countries? I would actually, do you know what really matters? Is the rate at which developing countries are being vaccinated too. It is wrong for us just to say that the point of comparison is where the developed world is. Jack, until all of us are part of widespread vaccine programs, no one is safe. Because if there is COVID rife in any country, mutation occurs, that means it affects vaccine efficacy, it means no one is safe. So those comparisons are almost meaningless. Can you ask, answer that question? I'm, I'm just oh, interested. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I just wanted no, no, to make, no. it was an important point. No, so okay, please, okay, go okay, back so, to the... so compared to other countries yeah. in the OECD, will our per capita rate of vaccinations improve? Or are we going to be second in the last, uh, second to last in the OECD to complete well, our vaccinations? Of course, the per capita rate, everyone is moving to try and get the majority of their population But compared vaccinated. to other countries in the OECD, are we going to be second to last the whole way through this oh, vaccination I, I, process? I, my focus has been vaccinating New Zealanders as quickly as possible. I haven't sat down and done those comparisons, Jack, so I can't answer that for you. But many countries we compare ourselves to, the likes of Australia, are looking to finish at a fairly similar time. So we will absolutely come up. Of course, we're looking to move from 10,000 a day to 50,000 a day vaccinated at our peak. So those rates, of course, will move quite quickly. I mean, you, your officials were the ones who promised a world-leading response on this. And, of course, many people have credited your ability to keep COVID out of this country up to this point. But, but vaccination rates are incredibly important when it comes to reopening New Zealand's borders, when it comes to rebuilding our economy off the back of this pandemic. One thing that would clear a lot of this up is more detailed data when it comes to our vaccination well, the progress first thing in the I'm future. Saying, is I'm not sure what you'll hear, what the firm criticism is. So we have, unlike We're behind other Rwanda, we're behind Mongolia, we're behind Suriname, we're behind Uruguay. And in some cases, they will be using multiple vaccines coming from Second to last in the OECD. In which we haven't approved a vaccine. In other cases, they will have re rightly received either from Gavi or COVAX donated vaccines, and that is as it should be. Ours, it's not all apples and apples because, Jack, we, unlike many other countries, have chosen a single vaccine as our primary vaccine. And I think that will be, in the end, a choice that we'll be pleased with. But it does mean that our rollout will be different. But our situation is different. Jack, people are not dying daily here. Why? And that does mean the equation and the delivery status the amount we receive and when we receive it will be different. OK, so, so why don't you publish that information? Why don't you say, right down to the number of vaccines we expect to receive at certain times, the number of people we expect to vaccinate at certain times, because that information isn't available. Well, we have, as of this week, started um, sharing with you... That's retrospective. It's not, it's, not, it's not prospective. We have been sharing with you the dashboards around our progress. We've also been indicating... But, not, but, but we want the future information. But, uh, Jackie, again, you know, this is the biggest immunisation campaign that New Zealand has ever run. And you've had a year we to organise, so why can't we get future information? Well, uh, uh, if what you're asking is, do we have enough vaccination for the entire country right now? The answer, of course, is That's no. not what I'm asking. And I'm asking minister... for detailed information about when the vaccines will arrive in the country and exactly and how many been... vaccines we will be distributing may, week by week if I may, from this point forth. And we have been. What you're claiming, if I may finish, Jack, what you're claiming is that somehow we have a precise inventory from pharmaceutical companies of the precise amount that we will be receiving and when. We do not. That is why we have made very broad specifications around when we anticipate being able to vaccinate our different tiers. 
we have indicated that from July, it is our view that we will have sufficient vaccine in the country to begin our mass rollout. But again, we are relying on general data around from the pharmaceutical companies around what they believe they will be able to deliver to us. And that in some cases is why we haven't always been able to give the level of specification that you've been looking for. Well, does that mean that somehow our vaccination programme is worse than other countries? No, it does not. Will New Zealand use a nationwide IT booking system? Yes, we will. And that should be up and running by May. Till then, we've been using the existing booking systems of other DHBs. Not to be confused, though, by our National Immunisation Register, which is already underway. That is Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. After the break, housing. At the median level, do you know how much your house has increased in value since you took office? Uh... <laughs> Hawkey Mai, welcome back to Q&A. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs is giving the green light for military exports to countries accused of major human rights violations. A One News investigation by Benedict Collins found the ministry granted approval for the sale of mortar accessories to the Saudi Arabian military. I asked Jacinda Ardern if the sales are consistent with New Zealand values. Well, of course. In this case, we don't have to just rely on values-based judgments. We have a regulatory regime. Uh, and that uh, decision-making process actually sits uh, with uh, the head of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So that's where all those decisions sit. That's where those judgments are made. They're regulated by, for instance, end use, so whatever the product may be used for. So it's not a case that it's a blanket ban that for any particular military product, it just cannot be exported. Mm -hmm. It is a question of end use and also whether or not there are any UN resolutions that would prohibit export. So as a former nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize, are you comfortable with New Zealand listed companies selling no mortar, mortar control systems to foreign governments? No one is ever formally released as a nominee. That's pure speculation. Okay. But as a New Zealander, I would say my expectation, and as a New Zealander grounded with strong values in human rights as our nation is, my expectation is that the minister Ministry pays heed to the regulation that they are required to and that they make sure they apply all UN resolutions appropriately. Okay. Does it pass the sniff test? Selling mortar control systems to the Saudi Arabian government? Again, you're asking me for decisions that simply have not been put in front of me or decisions that I simply You've have seen the made. information I've seen? I, I have not, actually. I've, I've had someone briefly over the phone try and give me a heads up before this interview. I'll be happy to go back and look at them. But one thing that we have done, of course, is in recent times we've said we need to go back and just check that this regime we have, which we're asked to apply, um, is fit for purpose. And that's something that we have asked the Ministry to do. Who's, who's the reviewer? Uh, oh, I would need to go and check how that's been undertaken, but I think it's only fair after what we recently experienced with Air New Zealand that we give people confidence that what we're doing is right. So that was two months ago? Has a reviewer was, been appointed? I believe it was there or thereabouts, and they may have been appointed at this stage, and look, if you, if you, I can absolutely provide you that detail after, but it's a commitment we gave and that we'll sit with, uh, that we stand it just by. Seemed, it seems, given your, um, given your upset at the, at the Air New Zealand revelation, it will seem surprising to some that you haven't taken a, a closer look personally at the deals that New Zealand companies are doing with foreign militaries. Ah, and I am aware of some, but you're asking me to refer to three years' worth of decisions, not all of which will have come back through me. What I wanted them to do was look at whether or not the regime, prospectively, going forward, is something that we can hand on heart say we believe is meeting our values and expectations.
Does it meet your values and expectations to have a New Zealand company selling mortar control systems to foreign And I'm not going to give you a, an answer on something that I cannot, you know, in full conscious say without having all the information in front of me. Because, Jack, our regulations doesn't say if you produce anything that may be used by the military, it cannot be exported. That's not what the rules say. This isn't say. a computer program. It's a mortar control system. Yes, but there is, not a, there is no blanket ban on the production of anything like that in New Zealand. It's all about end use. Who it's used by? So what would you what, what would you use a mortar control system for? And this, as I say, this is what the regulations say. So literally, it is about the end use, whether or not it's in breach of our expectations based on UN resolution, or in breach of any humanitarian guidelines. Now, New Zealand has a military ourselves. Of course, we purchase military equipment, so we're uh, we're not so um, I think uh, inclined to say that the fact that people purchase these items is in question. It's how they are used and who they are used by. Housing. What will the housing changes you've announced do to house prices? Well, what we're hoping for is, of course, to take the exponential increases uh, out of the market that we've seen. I mean, in the past year, upwards of 20 per cent. I don't think anyone believes that that is good for New Zealand's economy. It is certainly not good for our first home buyers and uh, creates potentially a bubble that's damaging for all. Do you have advice to that effect? Uh, there's a range of predictions and you'll see everything from bank economists making their assumptions around what would happen. What's the advice you received? That it would make a difference, the quantum of which is very difficult to, um, to pinpoint. Who, who's, who said it would make a difference? Oh, depending on who you ask, of course, but Treasury are of the view that it would make a difference. They supported the idea idea of an extension of the bright line test. We didn't go as far as they'd like, but there is a view that an impact would be had. What about the changes to interest deductibility? Again, different departments, different views. IRD, different view to um, the Ministry for Housing and Urban Development, different to Treasury. That is why we, ultimately, the buck stops with us. We have to use our judgment and what we believe would make a difference. Is it, is it, is it responsible for a government to make decisions of that magnitude without advice supporting it? Uh, the, uh, we do have advice. Uh, so some which of advice it, supports some the of it changes is, to interest Some of it is contestable, is what I'm saying. Not all departments viewed it in the same way. Mm. It is irresponsible, I would argue, not to take action when you are faced with something as exponential as a 20% increase in house prices. You will have also so, so seen why that there why didn't are... you act beforehand then? Because before, also, before COVID, uh, house prices, sorry to interrupt, increased 26% under your watch. So why didn't you act then if the 20% threshold is a concern? We took action like uh, uh, moving on foreign buyers. Uh, we took action around increasing the amount of public housing Interest supply. deductibility? Uh, we, did, we did take action on closing tax loopholes. That was not one of them. Uh, of course, we have now moved on it. We are in the position where we had the support from the entirety of government and ministers to do it, and we have. At the median level, do you know how much your house has increased in value since you took office? Uh, I've, of course, moved in that period of time, but I can tell you from the, my neighbourhood, Jack, because let's be fair, it's about what's happening in Auckland, I can tell you that a sale across the road only further reinforced for me why we needed to act. The increases we've seen, be it for my house, the house in my neighbourhood, or in Auckland generally, are wrong. It's unsustainable. 430000 Since you bought that house, 
you were, you've been Prime Minister for months at that stage, that's how much it's increased in value. And again, whether it's or not it's mine or my neighbours or anyone else's, I don't agree that that is sustainable or right in a fair-minded country that wants people to be able to first-time buyers to purchase. And clearly a lot of people And would, there's no need for us to have to analyse my house for me to know that. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it, that, that your house has increased in value more than $100,000 a year and since no you bought it. And no-one would think that is so, right, so what's an affordable including house? me. It, 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 on an index of, of, of uh, house value to uh, the average median household income, what is an affordable house? The technical description is 30% of your income at any given time. And for most people, um, what they're seeing in the housing market outstrips that. For many of our, particularly our renters, they're experiencing you know, uh, increasingly an environment that is difficult for them. So how long will it take if New Zealand wages increase at, say, 4% a year, for New Ze if, if you achieve this well, period of moderate, sustained moderation, which is what you want, how long will it take until houses in New Zealand if are If house affordable? prices continued at 20% per year, we would constantly be chasing our tail, which is why we moved in the way we did. So, so how, long, but, how long will it take? If it doesn't, no, that's my question, sorry. If, if, if you achieve this period of sustained moderation, how long will it take until houses are affordable in My New Zealand. view is that we, and it depends where you are in the country, it depends what's happening to wage At the median growth. level, New Zealand's Jack, 8 to 1, may, Auckland's can we 11 come, to 1. Can we come back to the first principles here? If you're asking me, is it right what's happened in New Zealand's housing market, my answer is no. That's if not you're what asking I'm asking. Me, I'm asking how long it will take until houses are affordable in New Zealand. If you're months. asking me whether or not people's incomes need to continue to grow and for us to improve housing affordability by making sure that we are closing that gap, I will agree with you. What we can contest is whether or not what I'm doing is from your perspective enough. Now, no, some I'm just have asking argued, how long it will take. Some have argued, and no one I think at this point will be able to ask, answer that at this point because we don't know what impact these changes will yet have on house price growth. But our view is it will have an impact. Let's talk about mental health. You were elected on big promises to improve mental health services in New Zealand. The Mental Health Commission Foundation said to stuff this week, the anecdotal reports we get frequently are that things are getting worse in mental health, not better. Where is the change you promised? Well, the change that we promised was to make sure that we were not only just continuing to invest in significant uh, service that we have already, but that we were fundamentally changing the way that we deal with mental health in New Zealand. At the moment, the focus tends to be on acute care. Our view was that we needed to invest more in addiction and treatment services to address causes or contributing factors with investment in the likes of family violence and harm, homelessness, and that we needed to provide service at the beginning of distress, not at the end. That's why we created an addition to our service, which is primary mental health care. What we want to ensure is that across the country, over a period of five years, we build a service that means if you go into your GP and they identify that you are in distress and that you need mental health care and support, they can provide it within that service in that moment. With almost up to a million New Zealanders being able to access that service, 9,000 have already received that form of care. We continue to roll that out, but I do believe that that is making a difference. There is still more to do, though. Mental Health Foundation disagrees. This is and a quote from the head of the mental I mean, this is not a crackpot organisation. This is the Mental Health no, Foundation. It's an indicator of a mental health system that remains in crisis, if not in worse crisis than it was four years and ago. When you Sean, think back look, to the promises you made on this front, that is a damning assessment. And I, I do you know, I think it is also, whilst it is absolutely um, up to the prerogative of any advocate within a service to share their perspective, 
I will still share mine. You cannot tell me that $1.9 billion of investment across those areas I've just named, including the building of an entirety new service, will not make a difference. But we all acknowledge we are playing catch-up. We did have significant underinvestment and we didn't have enough going into those early causes of trauma. So it will not happen overnight. Are benefits at their current levels high enough for all New Zealanders to live with dignity? No. How high do they need to go? Well, of course, different perspectives on that. We uh, used the opportunity with COVID to make sure that we were addressing needs as Sorry, quickly as we could. I know we're running out of time. What's your perspective? How high do they need to go? Oh, I, I, again, these, these are subjective judgments. I don't You're the think Prime Minister. They, yes, I am. But whether or not just giving a dollar figure, it depends, again, how many children you are caring for, where you live in the country. Give us a percentage um, then. And, and Jack, I'm just not going to do that. But what I will say is we use the Wealthy Expert Advisory Group to give us a starting point. Mm -hmm. They've given us their guidance. We've always said we wouldn't be able to achieve it straight away, but in some cases, sole parents in particular, we already have. You've increased core benefits $25 a week as a, as a result of COVID-19. You've also indexed them to wages. We have. But the WEAG report that was released more than two years ago recommended you increase core benefits much more. Why haven't you, you acted also on that front? You also forgot to acknowledge the winter energy payment. We also bought in a payment for children aged one to three who are on low incomes of $60 a week per child. Uh, and of course, during COVID, we increased the winter energy payment. Now, all of that combined and our family tax credit changes means that actually for the most part, for sole parents, we've actually really almost reached where we said we should and, go. And you just said because because it's not enough for New Zealanders to live ah, with dignity. Your promise in, in the 2020 Labour election manifesto, modernising our welfare system so all New Zealanders can live with dignity. I am going to make some, a point of differentiation here. I'm also the Minister for Child Poverty, and so we have unashamedly focused on families with children. Mm. And so we have seen a significant increase. On some cases, it would be on average as high as $100 per week, per week for a family. That is a big change. No government has changed benefit rates in that way, in that amount, for decades. And that has been because we acknowledge the inadequacy. Again, though, people on the front line say it's not enough. You've received an open letter from 75 organisations saying, we please, will... Prime Minister, increase benefits. Next and, month and is the will... third budget. The third budget since the WEAG report was released. Will you increase core benefits? I'm, I'm not going to make any announcements at all about our budget in this moment in time. But what we have all as ministers acknowledged is that there is more work to do there. But I have a responsibility to make sure that whatever we do is sustainable. Mm. I remember the 1990s. We have been playing catch-up on those cuts for decades. Whatever we do, I want to make sure that it sticks, that we grow from there, and indexation helps that with that, rather than see changes in political cycles that mean we go backwards. Finally then, a couple of personal questions. Do you have contact with Winston Peters? Oh, I think we, we spoke a while pre-Waitangi, so it's been a little while since we spoke. We've certainly spoken since he's left Parliament, though. What's your relationship like now? Good. You know, I think that, you know, I think ours will be a relationship that was always built on respect. Um, we went through a tough period in New Zealand's history together and, you know, I will always um, reflect on that uh, with appreciation that A, he gave me the opportunity to be Prime Minister, but B, that we worked so well together through that tough period. And finally, Kitty Allen. I know uh, you've known Kitty for, for years in a, in a personal and professional relationship. 
all the professional stuff aside, all the you know, all the all the work stuff aside, how how does something something like Kitty's News affect you? Oh, uh, in a very human way, just like anyone else would be affected if a friend had a diagnosis like that. Does it like give you perspective on stuff? Uh, I guess my answer would be, of course, because um, she is young, younger than me. Um, she is so energetic and she has so much to offer us, but she will still offer us that. Um, we are going to support her until she is ready to come back. I'm sure everyone agrees with you on that. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. That interview was recorded shortly before news of Prince Philip's death. Let us know your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook or email us q&a at tvnz.co.nz. The panel is here after the break. And then later, Wellington's Watergate. Are the capital's water woes fixable and how worried should other cities and towns be about their vital infrastructure? Hoki mai e welcome back and welcome to today's panel. NZME's Head of Business, Fran O'Sullivan, Economic Commentator Bernard Hickey and Academic and Writer Emmeline Pickering-Martin, who's a teaching fellow at the University of Auckland. Kia ora koutou. Fran, I'll start with you uh, and we'll start with COVID-19. Is it the right decision to suspend travel from India? Yes. Why? I think it is. Well, um, it's just um, the level of um, new variants and, com and infection coming into New Zealand. I think they have to get on top of it. Uh, there has to come, and I think this gives period to do it. So I would say it is the right thing. And I don't believe it's racist. I, I don't see it as um, analogous with what might be happening in the United States, where they are rolling out vaccination now. Um, and also, we're not seeing the level of infection coming from there. And when you look at the explosion in the numbers of cases and deaths in India compared to other places uh, where we're getting some people through, it's much, much higher. Mm. It's not um, a margin call. This is way higher than anyone else. What do you think, Emma? I think that it, it could be. It could be a good call. I just, I just wonder around if we're thinking kind of around how that places smaller communities, migrant communities, and what that feels like for them. So sure, the numbers are big, but um, when we look at the early response to COVID and people coming into the country, um, there were really big numbers elsewhere too, and we didn't mm. stop anyone else. And so from a migrant perspective, what is that saying to the communities? One thing of interest to me in that interview with the Prime Minister is when I, when I was asking for some of that detailed data about the future rollout of COVID-19, mm. there seems to be a lot of resistance from the government on that at the moment. And of course, I think we all appreciate you know, you are somewhat at the mercy of the vaccine supplies. Do you have any concerns at this stage about the speed of the vaccination rollout? Um, absolutely, yeah. I think what what is it doing for our com Pacific communities specifically because, you know, the airport obviously in Mangere, um, that's where the frontline workers all go and where most of them live. Um, the speed of it, it's, you know, what is it doing for our mental health waiting for that, waiting for that information, waiting for the timing and our families going to work and coming back and sometimes having to isolate from us ourselves, mm. you know, so... Bernard, what do you think? Yeah, the ghost of Kiwi Build hangs heavy over this government. They set a hard target and they failed to meet it. Same with the um, light rail project. There were going to be shovels in the ground and then there weren't. So they're very wary about setting targets and then failing to meet them. So the best thing to do is not to set the target in the first place. They've also seen how in Australia, for, for example, and certainly in Europe, targets were set and then not met. And uh, But 
we have more than a quarter of a million doses mm. sitting around in a warehouse, hopefully refrigerated somewhere, and that should be rolled out as fast as possible. I know the government says we'd have to scale up the centres and then scale them back down again because we're not going to get our big doses until the second half of the year, but these things always take longer than you expect. And um, just the, the mere idea that there is a bunch of those doses sitting there and they're still dribbling out and mm. it's already slightly behind the, um, the targets that have been set internally that uh, we hear about occasionally. That is a concern, particularly when you want the confidence of the public in the second half of the year, when we need to get those vaccination rates up over 70%. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing elsewhere in the world, real problems getting above 50 to 60% because of vaccine hesitancy and the massive misinformation out there about vaccines. Do we need more certainty about that data, Frank? Yeah, we sure do. And um, it's the kind of thing the business community has been asking for. People need to plan and they need to have a trajectory. Now, even if things shift around that and there's a reason for that, that should be explained. Uh, if there is some hiccup in the you know, distribution of global vaccines, I mean, questions I would have is, you know, are we paying the right price? Other nations actually flick their price up to get ahead of the queue. You know, this is um, why hadn't we considered doing something like Israel, for instance, where they swapped anonymized data, you know, back mm -hmm. to Pfizer. Um, you know, and, and also at the same time, there's shifts in the variants. So a lot more information should be on the table. I have no confidence in the ability, frankly, of the ministry to organise very much, which requires great logistical ability. And we've seen that actually with the management of um, the beginning of the mm. COVID pandemic. Um, how is this going to be pulled together? Where is the crack team that's actually doing this? I think they do need to put more information on the table to give us confidence so that we can, for instance, if we want to travel later, do business, see family, we know with some reasonable confidence when we'll be vaccinated. And the frustration here is that um, the restructuring of the DHBs is currently being considered as yeah. well. So what you actually need is a centralised, well-organised, single body rolling these vaccines out, which we don't really have. And we've discovered, in the, particularly in the last year, that that fractured DHB system isn't working for yeah. a national rollout. And um, it's, a, it's a pity that all of this is happening at the same time as the government's also trying to restructure the DHBs. There was one line that, that stuck in my mind after the interview from the Prime Minister. She said there may be some countries that signed their vaccine deals after New Zealand that will receive their vaccines before New Zealand. Is that going to be acceptable to the New Zealand public, Frank? Well, I don't think it is acceptable. And, and she has sort of goes off into this great waffle about what's happening elsewhere around I the mean, world. I mean, clearly and other countries are, are facing much worse yeah, yes, states and we know that, we are. And we yeah. know that. But however, this is her country that she's got to stick up for. She's got to deliver to her citizens reasonable expectations mm -hmm. about when people might be vaccinated. South Auckland is an issue. The North is an issue people who have various um, comorbidities, mm. that's an issue. So people should know that, yes, this is going to happen and they should know where it will happen. Um, you know, everything has become just too much held to the chest and not telling us about what's going on. Uh, on the business sector, we don't have a you know, Prime Minister's Business Advisory Council anymore. Um, the Prime Minister now reaches out to individuals. We don't know who they are. So we're in a situation where you know, people are almost forced to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with government mm. to actually push government to do mm. something yeah. and put info on the table. Without like, that information come, come going forward, we don't have time to educate our communities either. Like, mm. We need to have a clear guide around where we're going. We know Māori and Pacific communities uh, have an 
inherent mistrust of vaccinations mm. and the health system in general. So why can't we have that information to tell us, oh, maybe in the next three months you're going to be vaccinated so we can get our people into the community saying, this is what's going to happen, these are what the vaccinations are mm. about, we can, we can educate better and, and then we'll see a better uptake. And because the PM has a track record when we made that big call right at the beginning of, of COVID, where you know she did lay out exactly what was going to happen in the next two or three days. Mm. They were big changes, and the business community, the unions, and a lot of people got behind her. Um, mm. Maybe she should trust that. Um, it probably that, requires that a degree of maturity on both sides, doesn't it? You know, if 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 we as the public are demanding more certainty and clarity around when vaccines are going to be arriving and when they're going to be distributed. We probably also need to accept that these are unprecedented times and there could be some hold-ups in the supply. Uh, I want to ask about some of those other issues. Housing, mental health, poverty. The way I see it, those are three of the big issues, if not the three big issues, that Jacinda Ardern was elected as Prime Minister with three and a half years ago. Do you think, Emmeline, the government is acting with the urgency that those crises require? Absolutely not. They aren't. And we know that they're all in interconnected. So we know child poverty and housing and mental health all go together. And um, the kind of the problem is that it's not fast enough for people who are facing these issues. So sure, they've got the wraparound um, 5.1 billion or whatever um, package that has working for families and all these other things. But what that's not matching is the housing price raise and rents. Um, mm. There are no rent caps, like $750 a week in West Auckland for a little two bedroom house that hasn't met the healthy home standard yet because it doesn't have to for another three years. You know, like that, that doesn't help kids get to school on time. That doesn't help them have power working throughout the entire week. Um, if your parents are paying all their money on rent and then they're having to go to food banks to get food, like what kind of system are we creating? And it's, it's not fast enough at all. What do you think, Bernard? Yeah, because the, the Prime Minister and the government have made choices to not speed it up. Um, the argument would be, well, we can't afford to do these things this quickly. Well, that's simply not true. Just in the last couple of weeks, America has gone out of its way to halve child poverty almost immediately by simply increasing incomes for those people who are at the poorest level. New Zealand has very low net debt, but the government is choosing, the Prime Minister is choosing not to increase benefits in the way it was recommended by the Welfare Advisory Group. Now, she's choosing not to do it now because she's concerned that that would increase debt a little bit, mm. which no one in the financial markets is worried about. And all of our other peers in the world are saying this is not an issue. She is choosing to keep debt low and keep interest rates low for those people who own homes above reducing child poverty and really moving much more quickly to deal with housing and, and mental health and other issues. It's a pun. I reckon, I reckon they'll raise benefits in the budget next month. Uh, it's just a, I'm, and I have nothing to base that on, except that it's what the third budget since the WEAG report was released. And to hear her speak that definitively about whether or not benefits at their current levels are enough for people to live with dignity. But what we do know is that Grant Robertson said a couple of months ago he was not increasing the operational allowances mm. that were set at the end of last year. Now, since then, the government's budget position has improved dramatically. It is The deficit is half what was expected mm. because the economy's been stronger. And the government has said, no, we're not going to increase those operational uh, budgets. So either if, if the government is going to increase benefits, they'll have mm. to take it off spending in other yeah, but areas. The fundamental issue is they're going to have to get in and build houses. Mm. I mean, that is really, you know, it's all very well to deal on one side of the equation. Um, you know, with uh, tax deductibility, that type of thing, which brings in an extra 
500 mil to a bill. Uh, but, you know, the real thing is actually using the powers they have and building and just, you know, legislate. They've got a majority. Legislate. Legislate to acquire land. Legislate to set the price at which they buy that land. Mm. Other countries have done that, faced with population explosion and having to house their people. What do they put first? Is mm. it their people? Is it people? Or is it, um, you know, people who like the wealth factor? Mm. The National Party people who voted last time. Yeah, that's interesting. Emeline, I want to ask you about mental health in particular, because we saw some, what I thought were damning comments from the head of the Mental Health Foundation this week about the speed of progress on that front. We all remember those scenes of the Prime Minister standing outside Parliament promising massive change on that front. How do you assess their progress? Um, I think it's very slow. It's very slow. And, you know, they've got the Mental Health uh, and Wellbeing Commission now, so that's kind of started, and they've got a few things in process, the Suicide Prevention Office, but those things are really slow, and mm. we're not seeing any actual on-the-ground change. It's all up here, and so the people that are facing the system and wanting to use the system are facing those barriers of, you know, low resourcing, human resourcing. Mm. We don't have enough community mental health nurses. We don't have enough um, access for Māori and Pacific communities into the system itself. You know, like I'm a mental health system user and it, it is almost impossible to get in unless you're educated and you know where to go. And so all of this talk about, you know, 1737, it's great. It's this big number you can call and it helps you, you know, get into the system. Mm. There's heaps of blockages after that. And so all this change up here isn't really making any change down here. Okay. Yeah, and, and what I'm hearing from communities that I'm involved in is in Wellington is that um, it is impossible to get those appointments to get um, that, that work done. And the government, and it's four and a half years now, cannot simply say um, we need more time or we couldn't do it in the first term because of New Zealand First or, or whatever. New Zealand First were very keen to solve these issues as well. And uh, the guts of it is that the government hasn't managed to drive that reform through its public services for whatever reason, in large part because they get a lot of pushback from people who don't want to change the current situation or they say it can't be afforded. And the government spent its first term focusing on not increasing debt and still the uh, finance minister's bottom line in his most recent comments about what the priorities of the government are said it is to keep a lid yeah, on debt. But isn't it also a lack of execution capability? Yeah. I mean, this is sort of, to me, and that we saw that right through the first term, I mean, again, it's sort of like we were talking before about having fundamental organisation heft to deliver things like COVID. Where's the heft to deliver on the mental health side? Where is the... Does it need a particular task force, not an advisory one, but people who are action-focused to get stuff moving, clear through roadblocks, mm. give them a bit of power? Mm. And that's where this government is horribly weak. P particularly Kiwi now. Bill, you know, light rail... This. Particularly yeah. now that they have a majority in Parliament, this is unprecedented under MMP, oh, exactly. there are no excuses. Yeah. She is powerful, she is popular, um, the government um, have con complete control of the Parliament, they really um, should be able to push back at any officials who say, I'll just wait until the next election and then I'll be able to stop you from doing it. They should be able to drive this through. And uh, to see still the prevarication, the reluctance to set targets and to commit to making these changes, it's really disappointing. All right, we will pause there. Great call it all, guys. The panel will be back with us in a couple of minutes. After the break, though, a problem that is becoming all too familiar for people in our capital city. I think we've got the best downtown in, uh, in New Zealand. But you have to wear tramping well. boots to get through it, don't you? And a high-vis vest. <laughs> not at all, not at all.
Tēnā koutou, welcome back. Councils around the country are being warned about a looming crisis after decades of underinvestment in the water infrastructure networks that keep us running. Wellington is facing a $2.7 billion bill to fix its pipe network, plus problems finding the expertise for the projects. Here's Fina Owen. Wellington, a city earning a reputation for its water features. Earlier this year, during a run of them, the water shows were even given an unofficial name. Wellington Geyser Festival, I think I called it. Local identity Dave Armstrong has written about Wellington's damaged water pipes in his columns and social media. But with the rest of the country having a laugh, should a Wellingtonian get stuck in too? How do you deal with infrastructure crumbling around you uh, if you don't make jokes about it? So no, I, 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 that's how I cope anyway. The latest cluster of infrastructure problems began at the beginning of last year with a corroded sewerage pipe in Willis Street. That caused a stink for local businesses which were disrupted for months. The turd taxis arrived soon after. That's what residents called the convoy of trucks having to deliver sewerage sludge to a landfill because of a wastewater pipe breakage, a relatively new pipe. Then the showy stuff. Granted, this geyser on Mount Victoria was an accident, not a pipe malfunction. But erupting water mains and even a sinkhole seem to be regular events. On top of that, ongoing earthquake restructuring makes Wellington look like a construction site. You get around the city now, if you're driving, it's a nightmare. Uh, just is not as pleasurable to go out so much in Wellington at the moment. It hasn't changed my life at all. Yeah, Wellington's awesome. Yeah, the Civic Square, like the heart of the city's gone, hasn't it? So they renamed it as the heart of the city and then it doesn't exist anymore. Sort of narrowing a gorge yeah. through to Bar Point. On the terrace, we're talking sewerage with Wellington Mayor Andy Foster, who's fiercely defending his city. I think we've got the best downtown in, uh, in New Zealand. But and you we're have, looking to support have to wear that as tramping well. boots to get through it, don't you? In a high-vis vest. <laughs> not at all, not at all. Wellington, but that's just part of the problem. Wellington is a comparatively old city, a compact city, and much of its ageing water pipe network is in reclaimed land, and it has come in for a battering in the recent earthquakes. But this week, Audit New Zealand warned that the capital has underinvested. You have been on council for about three decades. You must have known that this was a ticking time bomb. Well, no, the, the reality is that we, in the past, we have never said no to any request for funding that we've been uh, asked for, for, for waters. Uh, we had fully funded the depreciation. The issue has been that not all of that depreciation money was going into renewals. But what we did do is we invested in things like sewage treatment plants, in um, things like holding tanks and pump stations. And in the hills above Wellington, a $68 million reservoir is being built. At the moment, Wellington's drinking water is piped in from the Hutt Valley. And if, for instance, the pipes were damaged in an earthquake, then this reservoir would supply the backup. These projects, along with the demands of three waters and Wellington's pipe repairs, are hitting ratepayers. It's estimated to be a 13.5% increase in the first year. Wellington's not the only council to hike rates. It's not the only council to have water issues. Many are grappling with drinking water quality. One thing to say is this is a national issue. We're not alone in facing this. Head of Local Government New Zealand, Stuart Crosby. If you look at the whole of New Zealand, you know, um, from the far north down to the deep south, the various councils and their infrastructure in different stages of growth and development 
and state or repair. But the vast majority of councils do have good solid infrastructure, but it's getting harder and harder to provide that high level of infrastructure on time. One of the reasons recently cited is lack of expertise and workforce. Wellington Water actually put up a proposal to say, can we invest in training future staff? Uh, and, and a training establishment effectively, and that didn't get through the uh, didn't get through the system. So maybe that's something that needs to be rethought. LGNZ says that lack of expertise to carry out council infrastructure projects is a national problem. My personal view is we will have to import some of that. We can't just rely on our current capability and capacity and technical expertise. Is workforce a reason why Wellington is far behind in assessing 450 kilometres of pipes deemed to be in critical condition? If you stretch them all out, that's Wellington to Tokoroa, and only 10 kilometres has so far been completed. Meantime, Dave Armstrong alerts us to another burst water main. Today there was an event in, in Karori in Homewood Ave, which is a very plusy part of town. Uh, but, you know, I'd like to point out that geysers can happen anywhere, and if you live in a not-so-great area of Wellington, you'll get a geyser soon. Up in Karori, the show's over, but surrounding residents are without water. I think your water's going to be off for five hours, apparently. All right. And there's no notice. Um, no, because it was a burst, it was an, a burst oh, water main. Yeah. Anyway, go and find out. And once again, Wellington Water has had to bring in a water tanker for local residents. This Wellingtonian has an issue with Wellington Water spending big on outsourcing public relations to manage its image. But the problem is not the message, the problem are the pipes. Fina Owen with that report. I'll bring the panel back in. Fano Sullivan, it's not sexy, but it is critical. Absolutely critical and, and hideous management by the local council who needs to be turfed out and someone put in for an action agenda again. But in Auckland also, we have the Harbour Bridge, we need a, another crossing here. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's a major issue that we all face. In New Zealand, infrastructure is not caught up. Uh, in Auckland, we have massive population growth ahead of us and we need to get on and apply efficiently. This really is uh, decades of underinvestment coming home to roost. Ratepayers and taxpayers have voted for tax cuts rather than investing in uh, infrastructure and also voted for low rates increases. And now it's coming home to roost because we've just had very fast population growth. The key now is whether both central and local government can agree on massive uh, infrastructure deficit fixing and preparing for the um, population wave to come because the borders are going to reopen and you can bet we're going to get lots of more people coming in. But you know that when the next local body elections come around and there are uh, murmurs of rates rises, the same people have seen their house values increase $150,000 a year will be very upset about a 6 or 7% increase. Yeah, yeah. Where was the planning? What, like, what, what were they doing? Just sitting back thinking, oh no, we're just going to stay at the same old rate of growth. Mm. Um, we know that Wellington's got a massive population growth. Auckland's ginormous, so they're going to need some good investment and good forward planning from now, please. Mm. Thank you so much for your comments today, guys. Really appreciate it. Emmeline, Bernard and Fran. After the break on Q&A, the teens who see climate change as a fight for their future. To be honest, Labor's uh, response has actually been fairly disappointing. Like, there's been some good stuff, but nowhere near the magnitude uh, that we need to see. The Climate Change Commission will deliver its final advice to the government at the end of next month. And thousands of young people hit the streets on Friday in a final push for accelerated action. 
It was the first climate strike since the Commission's draft report was published. So, has the framework given the strikers a sense of optimism? Here's Connor Sterling. Believe it or not, these were the quiet moments for the hundreds gathered on Auckland's Queen Street. There for a cause many feel their futures depend on. Sixteen-year-old Jack Barlow and fifteen-year-old Christina Sieberhagen organised this school strike for climate, the first since COVID-19 hit. You have to keep fighting because it's going to take a lot to reverse what's been done to the world. What brought you down to the climate protest today? Um, our world's dying, and we need our government to do something about it. Not enough action has been done, and we want action now. The not so young here too. The environment's an important prism to look at sort of world through, so and I'm supporting my daughter. Well, I've been worried about climate change for many, many years. Auckland scenes mirrored in Wellington and around the country where protesters say the political response hasn't matched the urgency of the crisis. How do you rate their progress so far? Um, I think New Zealand and the world is actually one of the... Um, uh, one of the better countries. But we're well past the point where a couple of good things here and there are going to get it. We need transformation of now, and to be honest, Labor's uh, response has actually been fairly disappointing. But for the first time since these marches began, there's a more detailed plan for the future. The Climate Change Commission's draft report recommends significant changes in agriculture and transport. It's received a mixed response. We thought that, um, in general, the advice was really good. It was very strong. It had a good focus on um, lots of different issues, which is really important because climate change is such a multifaceted issue. There were, there were areas that definitely were lacking, and I, we, yeah, we made a submission, so did School Strike Climate New Zealand, um, especially around agriculture. With Final advice due at the end of May, the choices the government then makes are shaping up as defining moments in our response to climate change. If they do um, end up receiving and taking in all of the advice from the um, Climate Change Commission, then they are bound um, to make lots of changes and see lots of action. And so it's really just hinging on that CCC report there. Connor Sterling with that report. Just so you know, we are planning a climate change special to coincide with the Climate Commission's final report that will broadcast at the end of next month. For now though, kua mutu. That is Q&A for this week. Nā mihi ki a koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for watching and for your contributions and to the Q&A team. Marae is up next. Hei tērā wiki. We'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.